Thank you, Caleb. It's an honor to be here today to, to fill the pulpit for, for one Sunday. It's an honor, and it's also, I'm scared, okay? Not in the way that uh, I'm ashamed of the gospel or afraid to preach the gospel. It's an awesome responsibility. And uh, I've been an elder maybe for five, five years, I think, and haven't preached a whole lot. Uh, when Pastor Tim asked me if I'd be an elder, I said, doesn't that mean I have, I have to preach too? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, you might want to change your mind. But he didn't. So um, God's using uh, Tim and all the elders there at Larue Baptist uh, really well. And we're growing, and we're uh, getting response or getting uh, to to get out and preach and to teach, and it's an awesome responsibility. As I as I have already said, also uh, this will be the first time I preach in front of people I don't know, except that we're all one in Christ, and that is an encouragement and a consolation to me as well. So. Uh, Bear with me today as I bring forth your word. I want to say I'm here with my wife, Nancy, and God's blessed us. We've been married 53 years, and kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, God has blessed us in a mighty way. God is a good God. I'm so thankful for his promises and for his blessings. Before we look into the word today, let's, let's pray. Father, as we come before you today to worship, to hear your word, we are reminded that your word is truth, that we can uh, rely on your word. Your word is there for our instruction to grow in righteousness and to grow in obedience. And Father, we are always uh, striving to do that, even though many times we fail. Many times we fall. Maybe sometimes we just feel like we're treading water. But God, we also believe in your promise that you never will leave us or you will never forsake us. So we can come before you boldly today because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We can come before you and proclaim you as Father, Abba Father, uh, who cares for his children. So we just ask God today that you would speak uh, through the word, the stammering tongues of this servant, to bring forth the word in a way that we can grow, and yet, Father, also convict us of our need to be closer to you and our need to have our sins forgiven. We're so thankful that you do that, that you are our hope, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like for you to turn if you want to read along with the text today in Luke 16. By the way... Uh, happy Mother's Day. almost forgot. Um, I hope you're not planning on listening to a Mother's Day sermon because you're not going to get one. It takes me a long time to prepare for messages, and Monday night to Sunday wasn't long enough, okay? So I'm doing one I've done before in our church a, uh, a couple of years ago. So uh, Luke 16.
beginning in verse 19, the rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in manner, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said, to him, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This here is a parable. We all probably have read it, heard sermons about it many times. And again, we remember that Jesus taught many parables. And what is a parable? I've heard it defined as a simple word pictures with profound spiritual lessons. As one pastor described parables, he said, they hide the truth from self-righteous, self-satisfied people who fancy themselves too sophisticated to learn from him. While the same parables revealed truth to eager souls with childlike faith, those who were hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So let's see what uh, profound spiritual lessons Jesus is teaching in this parable. You'll notice he was teaching to his disciples, but also, who was there? The Pharisees. Pharisees followed him around constantly, and he directed a lot of his parables to the Pharisees. And this parable is a little different than some of the others, most of the others, in that Jesus uses actual names of people in the story compared to a certain man or a certain land, landowner or a certain priest. We see them in, in other passages of his parables. He calls a poor man Lazarus. He also uses Abraham. The rich man is not given a name. So let's look at the different lives lived by Lazarus 
and a rich man. Again, in verse 19, a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who sumptuously ate, I can't say that word very well, sumptuously ate every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, over, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Jesus describes this rich man as clothed in purple, in fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. Purple that he wore was a symbol of royalty in those days. In the book of Judges, purple garments are the clothing of kings. So he was dressed in expensive clothing, the best that money could buy. And it also says that he ate sumptuously every day, lavish, luxurious meals. The New American Standard Bible says, joyously living daily in splendor. He could live it up daily because he could afford to do so. So he was obviously highly influential probably in the community. The synagogue and people probably looked up to him. And he must have had a knowledge of the covenants and laws of God. And he, and he knew who Abraham was. If you jump ahead in this scripture in verse 24, when he asked Abraham for mercy. So the rich man had all that he wanted in life, a life of ease, but he lived only for himself, as we can figure out from this passage. Now we see the beggar, Lazarus. How does Jesus describe this man? Completely opposite of the rich man. Jesus said he was covered with sores, poor, hungry, laid at the gate of the rich man's estate every day, he couldn't walk, destitute, probably shunned by the community, humil humiliated by them that passed him by day after day. He was repulsive to them and received no help. And to make matters even worse, the dogs came to lick his wounds. And that's pretty degrading, isn't it? And these weren't dogs that you would have holding on your lap. These were mongrels that would roam the streets of the town looking for whatever they could eat, just like Lazarus was doing. So as he lies at the gate of the rich man, watching him every day, is a picture that shows utter dis disregard of the rich man for the poverty-stricken man living in the shadow of this rich man's self-absorbed self-absorption, self-centeredness, self-indulgence. You know, back in those days, I'm sure we've, we, we've read in, uh, in Scripture and also uh, in history that when they ate, they, I think they declined on the floor, had a, maybe had a table there with them when they had a table there. And the Scripture says that uh, the poor man longed from, just for the crumbs from the rich man's table. You know, they used to have, they have bread at every meal. And a lot of times, from what I have looked into, the bread was used as something to wipe your hands on. 
You know, they ate with their hands, for one thing. And you can imagine oily bread or oily food, whatever. So they would, they would take that bread and just kind of wipe their fingers on it, and the crumbs would fall on the floor. That's what the rich man was wanting. Just that. Can you, that's, again, how humiliating that is. And that's what the dogs, the dogs of the city ate, too. So it gives you a pretty, pretty uh, destitute picture of how bad off Lazarus was. So the one man had all that he wanted, the other had nothing. And again, as we mentioned earlier, he would, Jesus would uh, proclaim his parables with the Pharisees in mind. He directed some of them toward them. As we see in the uh, previous uh, parable in the, of the dishonest manager, um, I think we already read it once today, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things that Jesus was saying, and they reviled him. Not only did they love money, they were prideful and wanted to be seen as justified by men. That's a good lesson right there. Our walk in this life, serving God, is not to be seen by men, exalted by men, self-righteous, hypocritical, prideful. These things are detestable to God. I'm sure the Pharisees, when they see, would hear this parable, would think that this wealthy man was extremely blessed by God and that the poor, destitute, despicable, despicable man laying in the street was cursed by God and worthy of hell. And this reminds me of another parable. It's in Luke 18, if you want to turn there, it's a short one, uh, starting in verse 9. The Pharisee and the tax collector, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple, into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I gave tithes. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far away, far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbled himself will be exalted. Jesus came to die for extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even this tax collector. As we see how Jesus described these two different lives of these two men, how extremely opposite they were of each other. Let's look at their deaths, how they died. In verse 22 of Luke 16, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, in hell, 
Being in torment, he lift, lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So let's look at how different the, the death were of these two men. The poor beggar, Lazarus, he died and what happened? Carried to heaven by angels to Abraham's side. As a poor Jewish man that he was, he probably didn't even have a funeral. Not been married, probably not buried in a tomb. Maybe not buried at all. He could have been thrown on the city dump where the garbage of the town was burned. But now he was in glory in his heavenly home. Welcomed by Abraham. The text says, welcome, or it says to Abraham's side or bosom, which means he's welcomed into the fellowship of Abraham and the other believers already there particularly Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. Now he's sitting at the place of honor, a far cry from where he was when he was on earth. A little side note here, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, 8, for we walk by faith, Paul speaking here to the Corinthians, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage and would rather be away from the body at home with, and with the Lord. Paul is telling the Corinthians that when he dies, he immediately will be in the presence of the Lord in spirit, as will all believers. So, the poor man goes from lonely, destitute, begging for food life every day, in an instant, he's in glory with Abraham, with God. That's what Paul's looking forward to, and we also should be, to be absent from the body, be present with the Lord. That's what happened to Lazarus. And what did Lazarus do to gain this salvation? You ever wonder about that when you read this parable? How do we know he was saved? How do we know he believed by faith? The parable doesn't say that. How can we know it's true? Jesus said he's in heaven. He's there. Carried there by the angels. Now let's look at the death of the rich man. Here's a rich, the rich man had the resources to probably had a fine funeral with relatives, friends, probably had the best tomb money could buy. But this was the last time his wealth was of any use to him. For now he was in torment, eternal torment. What an ironic twist in the story of these two, two men. A rich man who had all the earthly advantages, all the fortunes of life, but never offered to help the beggar one time, laying next to the gate of his mansion every day. Now he was the one humiliated abandoned, just like Lazarus was, humiliated, abandoned, 
now begging for relief, just like Lazarus was in this life. And Lazarus, he wanted only breadcrumbs from the rich man's table, has now received a place of honor in heaven. The rich man, who had everything, never shared, never showed mercy or compassion to Lazarus. And I doubt if he showed much to anybody else. Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes in Matthew 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There was no love in the rich man's heart toward the needy. You know, just as a side note, a reminder, reminder to us, 1 John 3, 17, 18, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love in word. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Back to the text, those who show no mercy themselves will receive none, just like the rich man will not receive mercy. And this is the first major point of two points that I want to bring out here today. Jesus teaches in this parable that hell exists. There is hell. Hell is real. I hate to say that Mother's Day, come on, let's talk about something else. No. What the scripture says, hell is a real place. And it's a, it's a subject that we don't like to talk about. And I'm surprised at the number of preachers, pastors, that don't talk about it either. And if, if you look in Scripture, Jesus teaches more about hell than he does about heaven. That shows how great import, importance it is to him and should be to us. We hear people say, if God loves everyone, how could he send anybody there? It's a terrible place. But most people, I would say most people that don't believe, may not think that way. They probably think it's not going to be that bad. Jesus describes hell in this, in this, this passage as well as others. But before we get there, I'm reminded of what I think John MacArthur said, how he talks about hell, what people think it is. Hell is an embarrassment to those who want Christianity to fit our modern ideas of having universal goodwill and broad-minded tolerance towards sin. Hell is an inconvenience to people who want the Bible message to sound cheerful to unchurched people. What good is it to try to get people to come? To get people to come to church and don't go and don't preach the gospel. Don't preach heaven and hell. It's it's irritating to those who want a religion that makes people feel good about themselves. Though we hear this all the time. Especially a if you have the nerve to watch any TV evangelist, uh, it's a feel-good, a feel-good message. 
sin's not mentioned. The last one, it's an offense to those who call little, who care a little about righteousness, and don't really fear God, but want to maintain some pretense of being religious. That's the key. They don't fear God. Got to remember who's telling this parable. Jesus himself. Hell is not a place that we can change, fix it to suit us. His word is truth. He tells us what what it is. And in in this parable, he describes hell as a place of eternal torment, fire, unquenchable for unquenchable thirst. When the rich man, imagine that, a rich man begging for just a drop of water from Lazarus to touch his tongue to get him, give him an instant relief of eternal torment. Mark says, or Jesus says in, book of, in the book of Mark, for I causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes to be thrown to hell, where their, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is quoted from Isaiah 66, the Old Testament. The fire is not quenched. So Jesus preaches that heaven and hell are both real places. And again, when people say God would never send someone to hell, such a statement is only possible if you ignore what the Bible says. And just say what it says. And just impose your own thoughts on the subject. This attitude is responsible for what is possibly the greatest sin a person can commit to reduce God to terms that are acceptable to us. I don't know who said that, but that's an amazing quote. To reduce God in a way that's acceptable to us. So here's a rich man suffering in unrelenting anguish and torment. And why is he there? Why do you think he's there? Because of his wealth? No. But money was his God, if I can state it that way. It was first place in his heart. And remember, money in and of itself is not bad. If you look at 1 Timothy 6.10, I think this vote is or this verse is misquoted so many times, especially in the world, for the love of money is a root of all evils. The love of money. It is though this craving that have some wandered away, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So it's not money itself, it's a love of money. If, if it's 
if that comes before you in your, uh, your faith in God, in your work for God, in your love for God, then that is a sin. And it will condemn. Abraham, remember Abraham, he was one of the wealthiest, richest men that ever lived. If you look in Genesis 13, it tells you everything that all his possessions, he was a rich man. Yet, he believed. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed by faith. Joseph of Arimathea, he's mentioned four times. He's in, in, in all four of the Gospels, a man that came and asked for Jesus' body to be buried. If you look into him, to some of uh, uh, the history of, of him, he was, a, he was a rich man. But he was a man of God. I think of the conversation between Jesus and the rich young, rich young man in Matthew 19, when the young man asked Jesus, what good deed can I do to have eternal life? He said, keep my commandments. But the young man said, I've kept them all, but Jesus knows a man's heart. He's broken the very first commandment even. You shall have no other gods before me. He knows that his wealth has become the idolatrous god of his life, and he was not willing to part from it, treasuring his earthly possessions more than his heavenly hope. So anything, no, not just money, anything in life can become your idol, and it can come before God. Fame, prestige, your job, your desire for entertainment or whatever, to be a great athlete, remember, nothing can come before God. If it does, it is your idol. You remember the passage that says, no one can serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. So again, as a rich man is asking for relief from his torment, he was not there because of his wealth, but because of his love for it. And his plea for mercy was not answered. The man seeking mercy now never showed mercy on this earth. He had his good things in life. He had what he had chosen. He couldn't, he could have spent time with things of God, delighting in his word. He could have showed mercy to Lazarus. Now he is the one that doesn't receive mercy. And not only that, Abraham tells him that there is a great chasm or pit between them. What's that mean? His fate is sealed. It's irreversible. The, the chasm was fixed. There's no second chance. He had his time. And now he's in eternal torment. After he realizes his fate, what does he ask for then? A chance for his brothers to be warned of this horrible place where he was. Let's look at that in verse 27 and 28. And he said to Abraham, 
Then I beg you, Father, to send him, Joseph, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. The only time probably in this man's existence that he was showing mercy, and that was for his family, his brothers. And you also notice that who does he call on to, to uh, take the tip of water to himself? Lazarus. He's still looking at Lazarus as subservient to him. He wants Lazarus to come to me. You know, and all later on, we see the same thing. He shows compassion, finally, the rich man in this passage toward his family. And again, he calls for Lazarus, the one he despised and ignored during his lifetime to be sent to his brothers. How did Jesus, or how did uh, Abraham respond to this plea in verse 29? But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Which leads to the second and last major point I wanted to make of this message. Scripture is sufficient. It's all we need. The sufficiency of God's word. Abraham tells him they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Sufficiency of scripture. Abraham's telling them they have the entire book, the whole Old Testament in their possession. Miracles of God performed. He mentions Moses. What did Moses do when he leading the, the Hebrew children out of Egypt? They had all those. They knew those. They knew the truths of God. The parting of the Red Sea. The plan to ten plagues brought down on Egypt. And the provision and protection God gave to them in the wilderness. These men, these brothers, have the word of God through the prophets and told from Moses. I think of today, or in Paul's time, if Paul had told this parable, he would have said, they have Moses, they have the prophets, they have John the Baptist, they have the risen Christ. If they wouldn't believe Jesus, why would they believe Lazarus? So what's the rich man say in response to this? When Abraham says, they have the prophets, Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. The rich man says, no. The rich man thinks he has a better idea. He thought there was another way to save his brothers, a sign. A sign to show them that there is a heaven, there is a hell. So they won't come there where he is. But that's for the rich man and not enough. He, sees, he says they need a sign. 
that if someone comes to them from the dead, they will repent. They had to have seen that in the prophet Ezekiel when he said, repent, turn away from all your offenses, and sin will not be your downfall. They had everything they needed to know about the gospel, about heaven and hell, about salvation. But the rich man and his brothers didn't want to repent. For one thing, it would mean they'd have to change in behavior or have to use their wealth on someone else. For the destitute and poverty-stricken like Lazarus, They knew that their sacrifices would have to be made if they were going to live as God wanted them to live. If you repent and believe. God's word is sufficient. His word saves and changes lives. Nothing else. If you say no to God, You're saying yes to eternal torment and thirst that will never be quenched. You know, there's evidence in the in the New Testament of 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 people rising from the grave. Look at the other Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. What did the people try to do after that? They plotted to kill Jesus. Even when after Lazarus, and the most bizarre of all is they conspired to cover up and deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So miracles have a no special power to convince those who reject the message of Scripture. And what is that message? It's a power of God for salvation for all who believe. In closing here, I'll I know teaching about hell isn't fun. Listening about it isn't fun. But it needs to be taught. It needs to be preached in the pulpits to those who are lost. So if you're sitting here today, an unbeliever, are you waiting for a sign besides God's word? waiting for a sign that leads you to repent and turn to God and to live by faith in Jesus Christ. Some people want a phenomenon, you know, lightning bolt or something to say, okay, this is a sign. I'm, I'm going to believe God now. Uh, no. The signs are in God's word. Remember the sign of Jonah? Or Jesus told about the sign of Jonah being in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's a sign of him, of his coming and his burial, his death, his resurrection. All we need are the words of God's truth. Nothing else. Nothing else can save. God has sent one who is righteous his only son, who became our righteousness by going to the cross for us. Even this is spoken of by the prophets years and years and years before Christ even came to earth. Everything we need to know 
salvation for salvation and for glory and to how to live in godly righteousness is in the scriptures. Very sufficient. It's the only book that may be in your library at home of all the books you have. It's the only one with the power to save you. Now, if you've trusted in God's word and believe in Christ, which I'm sure most of us, if not all, here today are believers, how can we apply this parable to our, to our lives? Number one, teach it to our children. Teach it to our grandchildren, to our great-grandchildren. Teach it to our neighbors and our friends, our co-workers, loved ones who have yet to come to Christ. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? Or how are they to hear without someone preaching? It's our responsibility. It's our commission from Matthew 28. From Jesus going to the world, sharing the gospel, baptizing, preaching the word. It makes you think, are we even concerned the least bit about our friends or our family members that where they're going to spend eternity? Do they have any reason to want to know Christ by the way we live our lives around them? God's people are the light of the world. The kingdom life within them is a living testimony to the ones who yet don't have the light. So are we living lives pleasing to God and showing hope to the unsaved? So this parable, though it is a warning that hell is a real place and what hell is really like, it's also, and more importantly, a lesson about the sufficiency of God's word and a plea for all who hear and believe to take the message of the Bible seriously because, again, it is a power of the gospel to salvation for everyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word, how it convicts our hearts, how it stirs us, Father, to remind us of how much we need you, how much we fall short how much we still let sin enter in. Our sinful desires crawl back into our lives and we struggle. But yet, Father, we must remember you have not let, left us alone. Your Son has not left us, but he has left us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God, which resides and dwells within us, teaching us, rebuking us, showing us the way of obedience. But it's up to us, Father, to do and to will as, as you want us to. So, God, teach us through your word to be mindful of those around us, 
of their standing with you. Give us boldness to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ and the salvation through him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.